Good morning and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me as always to for our weekend wrap-up in the uh, news is Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor, and John Bennett, editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, and uh, back in the White House, covering the White House in the next few weeks, as I take it. So, a lot to unpack this week. The debt ceiling limbo, how low can you go? Well, McCarthy may have already screwed up a deal, and will it pass the House? The Oath Keepers uh, have, several of the Oath Keepers have been sentenced, and Donald Trump has been accused or looked at for moving documents around uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Marjorie Taylor Greene laughed at in Congress. <laughs> Ron DeSantis launched himself on Twitter. Elon Musk called it the biggest story on the planet, and it fizzled. Of course, the biggest story on the planet that day was uh, the death of the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner. We have your letters and much more. Stick around. We will be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Coming back in three, two, one. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with me again, Michael Zeldin and John Bennett. And we're talking about what happened in the wonderful world of news this week, how it was covered by the press. And of course, the first thing we've got to talk about is the debt ceiling. Well, apparently there is a deal in the debt ceiling that was reached overnight. The highlights of it. Uh, the compromise, which would effectively freeze federal spending that has been on track to grow, had the blessing of both President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The deal would expand food stamp access for veterans and the homeless. Defense spending will grow. No big, uh, no big uh, surprise there. Spending on other domestic programs will fall slightly or stay roughly flat compared with this year's levels. And when we go back to uh, this, we take a look at what the president sent out. He sent a statement out last night, or this will be May 27th when he sent it out. Earlier this evening, Speaker McCarthy and I reached a budget agreement in principle. It still does have to be voted on in the House, and we'll talk all about that. It's an important step forward that reduces spending while protecting critical programs for working people and growing the economy for everyone. Uh, it re represents a compromise. This is wor These are words that both McCarthy and the president use. The agreement uh, represents a compromise, which means not everyone gets what they want. That's the responsibility of governing. In fact, it's it's interesting to note that those are the exact same words 
used by McCarthy and the president. So they hammered this out before. Uh, it's good news, that he says, for the American people because it prevents what could have been a catastrophic default and could have led to an economic recession, retirement accounts devastated and millions of jobs lost. So they're finalizing the details now. And of course, <clears throat> before that can even go to the vote, <laughs> McCarthy and uh, John, you tweeted this out. McCarthy went on TV and said, hey, now, the Democrats got nothing. We got everything which is a great way to try and get people to vote for your program. And he's going to well, have problems. <laughs> well, just just to be clear, what McCarthy told Fox News Sunday and and moderator Shannon Bream called him in the moment and pressed him on it uh, along the same lines as my tweet. What the speaker said was um, House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries told him last night, there's not a single thing in here for us, meaning Democrats. The Speaker of the House, who needs Democratic votes, went on national television, one of the most widely watched Sunday shows, and said, the Democratic leader said, there's nothing in here for his people. <laughs> now, Jeffries was later on CBS, on Face the Nation, uh, Margaret Brennan asked him about McCarthy's statement, and Jeffries at least said on television that he didn't know what the Speaker was talking about. But, you know, that's going to be part of this now that that McCarthy said it. he said the words on television yes, that, that Jeffrey said there's nothing in the bill for Democrats so that this is going to make the math harder and um everyone has some work to do here including the president I think Chuck Schumer has some work to do even Mitch McConnell uh they'll need you know there will be some Democratic defections in the Senate a lot of the progressives will will not like things like the work requ requirements uh, for the aid programs. Um, yeah, so, go into that a little. Yeah, so these work requirements uh, for things like food stamps and and other federal programs, uh, food, um, you know, some monetary assistance, things like that. The, the White House and President Biden said the words himself that that was a red line. Well, um, they had to cross a red line or two to get a deal and some new work requirements um, are are part of this agreement in principle, as they're calling it, um, and and that's that means you're going to lose progressives in the House and the Senate, and the numbers that matter here are 218 and, and 60. You still need to get over that 60 vote threshold in the Senate. That means you need at least 10 Republicans, and I I don't I don't see a Bernie Sanders or maybe an Elizabeth Warren voting for this because of those work requirements. Excuse me. So, you know, then you need 12 Republicans. The number just grows with every progressive that you lose. And the, the same thing is true in the House. McCarthy has some work to do. Jeffries has some work to do to sell this to their folks. You know, we've already heard from these members of these groups. It doesn't mean every one of these members that that runs in these circles or these 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 subgroups of each caucus, but the House Freedom Caucus, other conservatives who don't consider themselves Freedom Caucus folks, uh, House progressives, some uh, Lindsey Graham, a couple other defense people. They say, and there is a point here, and I covered defense, and this is a standard line. The deal would allow defense increases, but Graham's point is it's lower than the inflation rate. Therefore, it's actually a real world cut for the Pentagon. We can debate that another time. And even House Democratic moderates like uh, Jim Himes, uh, was on the was on one of the Sunday shows this morning, and he right now is not a yes vote either. He sounds gettable, but he's really skeptical 
of this deal. So that's five groups. And if you look just passing the House, you'll, you'll probably you'll get vulnerable Democrats in purple districts. You get a lot of Democratic moderates, friends of Kevin, as I call them, and other committee chairs and groups like the problem solvers, which a bipartisan, you know, conference or caucus that meets and um, they, you know, they're kind of the last moderates. But I don't know. I, I circled 218 question mark on my notepad here. I don't know if there's enough in those groups to get you to 218 in the House. And the House will go first here because if it doesn't pass the House, uh, there's no point for the Senate to take it up. even take a look at so it. So everyone's you... got some work to do here. Everyone appears to not like this very much. That's not um, that's not unique to this deal. Usually everyone hates these deals and just enough people you know, swallow hard and 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 vote for it and send it to the president. You know, over in the Senate, you'll get a lot of people who just got reelected. Those are six year terms. Um, you know, they can vote yes on something like this a few times. Uh, voters have shorter uh, memories than than you might think. So, again, it, it's I think it's an uphill climb in both chambers. Uh, this is a little different. There's a lot of stuff in here that both parties don't like. Usually it's, eh, I don't love it, but it's better than a default. We're not really hearing that this morning. People are really upset. Okay. Before I go to you, Michael, uh, uh, real quick, uh, <laughs> John, um, <clears throat> McCarthy has said POTUS swore he wouldn't negotiate, claims that he did, and that they're the big winner. One of the things in this particular uh, agreement is that they pushed this debt uh, problem ahead, kicked the can down the road two years. So Biden won't have to deal with this again as president unless he's reelected. And finally, doesn't uh, everyone who doesn't vote against this will be blamed for a default that could crush the American government? Doesn't that kind of put their backs against the wall? And the numbers that you're talking about doesn't that force legislators to say, "Fuck it, <laughs> I, I, I vote for it, or I'm going to catch the blame"? The hard right, particularly Marjorie, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the hard right will not vote for this. Period. And that will be interesting to see. What about, uh, did he negotiate? You think that president negotiated? Of course the president negotiated. <laughs> I've written about this. And, you know, I I think it was, I think it was, I, I don't even know the word. I mean, I mean, it's it just one of these come on guys situations, watching the White House try to say, while, while they're negotiating, to say we're not negotiating. Because the spending deal unlocked the debt, suspension or raise they can't even so far explain what this thing is going to do to the debt ceiling but it's not going to be a problem for two years so to say while shalanda young and mark rossetti are at the capitol negotiating that we're not negotiating was just not really based in reality so of course the president negotiated and and he gave a lot of ground on these work requirements and you know they're very concerned about the progressive excitement for his re-election bid and this will do nothing to help with that problem. Yeah, I my favorite part in the uh, watching us in that briefing room was asking Corrine if if she could guarantee there would be a deal, and she wasn't even on the damn negotiating team and had no clue. I'm gonna, Michael, your take on it? Well, you've said pretty much all there is to say, save for one thing, which I um, noticed, which I thought was you know foolish. Penny wise pound foolish was that they are going to excuse me 
they are going to claw back a portion of the $80 billion approved uh, uh, in order to increase the IRS so that the IRS could um, do more uh, auditing tax people. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm excuse me, I'm just losing my voice. So there was the expansion was to under the Inflation Reduction Act, $80, million, $80 billion to increase IRS's capacity to get tax cheats. Um, and the expectation was that the revenues that that $80 billion would get would be about $240 billion. So you were investing $80 to get $240. Um, but they pared that back substantially. And, you know, that's still part of this Republican myth that the IRS targets conservatives and conservative nonprofits. And um, also, of course, if you actually get people to pay their taxes, it's a tax increase. And they're not for tax increases, <laughs> even if it's even if it means getting money from people who are cheating the government. So that struck me as, you know, downright stupid. Um, but I'm sure that it was something that Biden had to give up um, because it was sacrosanct for yeah. Republicans. Well, the, the question is, of course, you know, the, the Republicans were are being led by a guy who's, who said that avoiding taxes made him smart. That's so <clears throat> what can I tell you? The, the Here's the final thought I'd like to talk about on this issue, and that is and get both of your all's takes on that. One of the things that they've talked about is in this far right scenario. Uh, Republicans will essentially tank the agreement and then try to vote as to whether or not to oust McCarthy as speaker. Um, and because the Republicans have such a narrow majority, McCarthy would, you know, could lose. Um, and now, John, you say they will try to, they won't vote. The conservatives won't vote for this. And so the other step is your scenario, avoid being blamed for the aftermath by voting against it, but letting it pass. Does this particular deal, this deal that's been struck in principle, lead to the ouster of Kevin McCarthy as speaker? John? Uh, first, a quick correction. I misidentified Steve Rossetti is Biden's longtime right. aide who was a negotiator. So apologies to uh, Mr. Rossetti. Um, no, I don't think that this, uh, that this is going to cost McCarthy his speakership, um, in part because it, it would just create a lot of strife. And I don't think, I don't sense that there's any appetite right now, um, to go through another speaker race. There's also not anyone who could get, you know, the 218 or however many votes, um, would be needed on the floor. Uh, it would bring everything to us to a just a, a screeching halt. And Republicans, of course, you know James Comer and Jim Jordan and others are investigating, um, investigating President Biden, his son, the lab, Hunter's laptop, all that. All that would come to a halt. They they would just be trying to find a speaker and voting on the floor, just like we saw in January. So. Um, there's just not a sense right now from from our folks who were on the hill this week on the House side. Uh, even Matt Gates said this week that that he he doesn't sense that either. And he would, you know, he's on everyone's list of of folks who would um, big mouths who, who would tell us ahead of time. 
Yeah, and 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 or one of the folks who would bring a motion yeah. to vacate the the speakership and 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 kick uh, McCarthy out. Um, I I do. Th there is a sense that um, on in in those conservative circles that McCarthy. I mean, they knew McCarthy was going to cut some kind of deal. So, um, you know, they don't believe they they don't seem to believe that 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 breaching the debt ceiling would be all that catastrophic. Um, that's the big difference with, with those folks, but they're not, you know, no one has called for McCarthy's head, so to speak. So I, I think he's going to survive this. Uh, and again, there's just nobody else, um, who wants who, it who, or who <laughs> wants it. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's a tough job as we saw this week and, um, yeah, maybe Donald Trump could get enough votes to be speaker. I'm not sure. Maybe Mark Meadows, who's uh, been advising house Republicans on the phone, that would be uh, hilarious if Donald yeah, Trump had that. Maybe job. somebody like that, but you know, I don't, I don't know if Steve Scalise or Patrick McHenry. You know, a lot of the conservatives now are upset with McHenry, who was one of the negotiators. So you know, he's always insiders would tell you that McHenry, after McCarthy, could be a speaker down the road, but maybe not now. So there's just nobody. There's no alternative. Michael, I, look, this this thing is going to pass in my view, because yep. the, the the failure is just too catastrophic an option for either side to suss out the politics of it. So I don't think, I think both will blink because they just don't know who will be blamed for this. And melting down the economy is not something that I don't think that either side wants, even though some polling seems to say that Biden would get more blame than the Republicans. I'm not sure how they know that exactly. So I think right. to John's earlier point, I think you're going to get enough people who will hold their nose and and vote for this. And, you know, maybe this is really what legislating is about. This is an agreement that everybody is a bit unhappy with. And that yeah. usually is the sign of, of, of a good compromise. You know, I would have changed a lot of this as uh, others would have changed it on the other side. But the fact that we're both a bit unhappy probably means mm. you can force it. You can force it through unless unless you get, you know, a, a block of people who are just going to hold out for the sake of of, of holding out. And then then it becomes a, a bit of a free fall. But then they get the blame. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you this before we move on. What I find, <clears throat> I don't know, almost curiously refreshing about this is this seems like Oh, uh, it seems like normal Washington, D.C. again, which is what, you know, I kind of wanted to see after four years of Trump. Everybody's that's the art of compromise, the art of half a loaf, the art of real politics. This was people going in who disagreed. But and and I, look, I pointed out in a piece I wrote two weeks ago, I, I said, you know, it was the president and McConnell, the president who came out and said, we're not going to default no matter what. And McConnell said, and his words were, there's not going to be a default. I know it. They know it. Not going to happen. So, I mean, almost word for word, that's what he said. So the 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 die was cast then. It was the, the devil was in the details of the deal. And it was almost refreshing for me to see that at the end of the day, this was politics as normal in D.C. if there is any such thing as normal. Uh, from there, I want to switch to um, the Oath Keepers of this week. The founder of the far-right Oath Keepers was sentenced to 18 years in federal prison. Stuart Rhodes got the longest 
uh, imposed sentence on a January 6th defendant to date. It was um, in a politically charged speech in the courtroom just before his sentencing. He called himself a political prisoner, said that when he talked about regime change in a phone call with supporters, he means that he hopes that former President Donald Trump will win in 2024. The judge disagreed with Sir. And this quote by the judge, I think, uh, stands out. You, sir, represent an ongoing threat and a peril to this country and to the republic and to the very fabric of this democracy. That was Judge Ahmed Mehta uh, before handing down the sentence. Uh, Michael, in addition, uh, we want to talk about that and Donald Trump apparently trying to move documents or have holding court with people. I'll, I'll let you take it away from here. So a couple of things. First, you're right. The Oath Keepers uh, got very long sentences, 12 years, 18 years, four years. And what we saw from this judge, and it's only one judge, but what we saw from this judge was that he was going to hold accountable those who were organizers in a fashion different from and worse than those who were insurrectionists, you know, boots on the ground sort of people. And, you know, if there are charges to be brought down the line for the what we call the suits on the podium, as opposed to the boots on the ground, then if there is evidence that shows that those people too were organizers, that does not bode well for anyone who is convicted of being an organizer if they're in front of, of this judge. You know, there's dots still to be connected, but this was a, a, a shot across the bow. The other thing, though, that struck me of in, as of interest is that a couple of the Oath Keepers, apparently in the courtroom, were um, contrite. Rhodes was not, but others were apologetic. The question is, do those guys, now that they've been convicted, have anything to tell prosecutors that might help them link the boots on the ground to the suits on the podium, because you can always move for a reduction of sentence based on cooperation after the fact of the sentence. You've got a right. finite period of time to do it in. So it'll be interesting to see whether those who have yet to be sentenced, because remember there was another trial that took place and that sentencing is pending, or whether any of the defendants who were just sentenced now become cooperating witnesses, assuming they have something to cooperate. So that's that's, I think, the larger takeaway from the Oath Keepers' convictions. On your second question, Brian, of what is going on in Mar-a-Lago with those documents, the reporting from the Washington Post and the New York Times is that Trump ordered documents to be moved in anticipation of the Justice Department coming down to retrieve documents. What's unclear is why they were moved and whether things were removed from the boxes before that search. So the the storyline is that the boxes were returned that boxes were returned to the storage unit. The implication being that that was that allowed Trump to take stuff out of it and then put stuff back in and that's how we ended up with the false certification that all that has to be given <coughs> has been given then a search warrant follows and 100 plus documents are found. So the whole question is, what is it that is going on here? Are they just organizing their documents so they'll be more readily accessible to the DOJ and to the certifi certifying attorneys? Or were they up to something tricky 
and removing documents uh, to obstruct the inquiry. And if it's the latter, and they have witnesses that to say, yes, I was moving these things at his behest after he removed documents from them, that, that makes it almost impossible not to prosecute for obstruction of justice. But we just don't know yet, Brian, why why they were moved. But as one of the articles said, this was seen as a dress rehearsal for when uh, the DOJ was going to come down. I'm not sure that I completely understand what the dress rehearsal was. But again, the implication is that they know that something is going to happen. And so they're preparing for it by removing documents that the government seeks. So when you, know, you, you can you can argue it, Brian, I just could say you can argue it the other way that a dress rehearsal, like the dress rehearsal for a play, is getting yourself organized so that you can, you know, right. perform according to what is expected of you. So I just don't know. You know, the mantra among most um legal analysts is all inferences should be drawn against Trump so that we can say the, the shoe is about to drop. I, I don't fall in that school. And so I'm just saying, well, you know, there's movement of documents. Could be bad, could be good. Let's see what Jack Smith um, decides about it. Yeah, what do you think when you look at it? I, I don't know, Brian. It's it's really hard to know. Do documents are moved the day before the DOJ comes. You can say that was done for bad purpose, or you can say that was done to get it organized for good purpose. And how mm. do you how do you define that? Where's the evidence from, from the outside? And so my it seems to me safer to say we know what occurred. Documents, boxes of documents were being moved from and into the storage uh, area. That area was apparently searched by Trump's attorney Corcoran. Corcoran. Uh, writes a letter saying we've given you everything that we have, and then it turns out not to be true. So was Trump uh, taking advantage of his lawyer and hiding stuff from him? Was he hiding stuff from the DOJ? You can imply that, but you just don't know it. Huh. All right, John. How does this, uh, the question, I, let me, let me be pointed. The Oath Keepers sentencing, how does that affect Trump or does it? And how does this moving documents politically affect him well who's to say they didn't move the boxes so they could vacuum in the storage room yeah right. i mean and and i have a sneaking suspicion that if trump was involved in discussions about moving boxes for whatever reason that trump hinted vaguely to someone who gave an order to someone who gave an order to someone who gave an order to someone to move the boxes and it'll be hard to tie it to Trump because that's kind of been his M.O. Uh, for decades. So um, I remain somewhat skeptical that any of this is, is going to stick to the former president because so little uh, seems to. The other part of me wonders if um, if he's become more of the person we saw in the town hall and maybe he did drop his mo and give an order to you know bring those bring bring those bleeping boxes up here so i can get my documents out of them um <laughs> but i'm a little torn on this one i know that's not uh not great uh podcasting no um, but but it's but the oath keepers the oath keepers you know they they still didn't they didn't connect those dots all the way to trump the did they? 
No. Yeah, so I'm I'm not sure unless unless those guys well, the only thing linking that them. they can provide to federal prosecutors now, maybe to lessen their sentence or to avoid charges, but we haven't seen, at least it, we, we don't think we've seen that yet. Well, Rhodes, I, as I pointed out in the beginning, says he's a political prisoner and all he said he meant was the hopes that Donald Trump will win in 2024. So there's no admit admission of direct connection to Trump, right. just that he, you know, adored and worshiped the Donald uh, mm-hmm. it's to me and I got guys, I guess I got, you know, the, the judge sat in on this, the judge heard all the, the evidence and it's the statement that he made that I find most chilling. You sir present an ongoing threat and a peril to this country and to the Republic and to the very fabric of this democracy. And at the same time, Rhodes says, and he'll continue his, you know, uh, his ranting and raving from behind prison bars, you know, what frightens me is that we've made a martyr out of this moron, but um, I guess there's, you know, I, there's no other action. If the judge right. firmly believes based on the evidence that he heard what this guy is, there's really no other action that could be taken that I see. And so I, I to me, it, I think this whole Oath Keepers thing is uh, bears watching because I want to see who else. Uh, will adopt that strategy of ranting in the courtroom about how they've been wronged, but will you know, and and who they and who those who will hear those words, you know. But the thing to say, Brian, though I don't like anything about the Oath Keepers, is that these guys have a sincere belief, as misguided as it is, in the righteousness of what they're doing, of their cause, yes, and and so you know, in some sense good for him you know he's got he's got mistaken beliefs that are abhorrent but at least he's, you know at least he's adhering to them consistently you know yes that's true and he's I, willing to go to jail for 18 years um for those beliefs so you know i suppose there's something that's admirable about it save of course the the beliefs that he believes which are it's completely despicable. <laughs> well, the part that frightened me was uh, he wrote in a message ahead of the January 6th attack, they won't fear us until we come with rifles in hand. Well, well and- all right, you can believe what you want to believe, but man, at that point in time, <laughs> let's, let's draw the line. Let's- well, can I just say one thing, Brian, and I'm sort yeah. of um, pimping my podcast a, a, a bit. But, <laughs> go, um, go ahead, pimp your podcast. Next week, I'm interviewing... Um, Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote a really interesting book called Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. And what we're seeing in the Oath Keepers and the Michigan militias uh, and the Proud Boys, you can really trace it straight line, solid line to Timothy McVeigh no. and the Oklahoma City bombing, Mm-mm. the uh, the 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 language that they use now i think it is is very very similar no you can go further back but i'm just saying no, from, directly from directly you can go directly to what happened in waco because timothy mcveigh oh no no I understand at waco that's yeah, no, where, no. that's where the language started he's right i will give him that that no no jeffrey says jeffrey says what em, emboldened mcveigh to act was ruby ridge waco and Bill Clinton's um, uh, ban on assault weapons, those three things, but principally Waco, um, and then followed by the 
uh, ban on assault weapons, uh, militarized McVeda to act as opposed to just, uh, you know, talk. Yeah. Uh, and so I it's, met, inter- it's a very interesting line. It's, it, it, it is. And I made this point in a couple of columns as well that I met, I and many reporters met Timothy McVeigh at Waco. I did not know who he was, of course, at the time. I simply met the guy who was selling all of the pro Waco uh, memorabilia at a at a stand bumper sticker. I was amazed that you know there's a guy selling bumper stickers. We ain't coming out. The government's out to get us. Ruby Ridge, Waco, assault weapons man. But it was that specifically what they did in Waco that that uh, emboldened him. And in talking with the guy, then there was no doubt he. All the language that you're right, and and Tubin is right, and uh, on that regard, all the language that we hear today came from those events, without a doubt. Um, yeah, we're gonna. And, it's, what's it, and what's it, just one last point on that is what's interesting is that they they fashioned what they were doing as a need to ensure their freedom, that freedom yeah. from the government, and you know you can't miss the irony of the Mark. Um, uh, Meadows and um, Kevin McCarthy, they're part of the quote-unquote Freedom Caucus. So they're picking up this word that really was part of white nationalism um, under under McVeigh and, and Rush Limbaugh and all those guys, and they decided that's that's a good place to name their caucus, you know? <laughs> well, sort of uh, makes you want to sit up straight. Now you remind me of an article of a piece that we did on America's Most Wanted, and we interviewed one of these white nationalists who was at a compound, and he, and he had left. And he left because he said, one day I was sitting there at guard duty, and this big fat guy in underwear and mud came rolling in, and and, and he took off his stuff, and he was he was eating uh, candy bars and and peanut butter and drinking beer and his gun fell apart on the floor and he looked at the guy and he goes, "This is the superior race. I got to get out of here." <laughs> that was <laughs> so he abandoned him. So anyway, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, speaking of laughter, John Bennett's going to tell us a, a wonderful event that happened in Congress this week with Marjorie Taylor Greene. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. With me again, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John Bennett. John, this week, one of my favorite belly laughs of the week, Marjorie Taylor Greene. First of all, what the hell was she doing at the podium? (laughs) Riding herd over Congress, over the House. She bangs the gavel. She asks for decorum in the House. She's met with raucous and, and loud laughter from every Democrat and several Republicans 
in in the house. What the hell happened, John? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, she was she was presiding over the house like all members of uh, the majority have to do from time to time, especially the uh, the younger members. Um, it can be kind of uh, tedious, a tedious exercise, you know, if you have a five vote series and you've got to be up there for a while uh, or, you know, there's lengthy debate on a bill and you're just recognizing the gentle lady from California and the gentleman from Ohio. And um, so they make the youngsters do it. It's also a way for them to learn the rules and, and things like that. Um, so that's why she was up there. It was just her turn. Uh, but she her did turn in the barrel. <laughs> right, right. So um, she she called for decorum in the house. You know, things can get uh, loud, especially, like I said, if it's a, a multiple vote series, members are on the floor, staffers, some staffers can go down there, too. And uh, people are talking and chatting and, you know, what happened in committee this morning or have you heard the latest on the debt talks? And um, they uh, uh, whoever's in the chair, you know, they're trying to keep the trains moving. And that's what she was trying to do. Um, and but it was ironic that the person who yelled at President Biden during his State of the Union <laughs> and, and, you know, she's she knows how to get attention on herself. Uh, she has mastered that skill. So that's what the laughter was all about. The Democrats had a nice a nice uh, time with it. Um, you know, uh, blooper reels of Congress this week had a nice time with it, including roll calls, hits and misses. Check it out now. Um <laughs> So, you know, it was to, good to for them. But in the, he, in you're the returning grand... Michael's favor. He pimped this podcast. That's right. Free plugs for everybody. <laughs> and um, yeah, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, it was just a lighter moment on what was, you know, a, a pretty serious week talking about um, food stamps and work requirements and defense cuts. So uh, it provided a lighter moment. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, I don't I don't think it moves the needle any any way or the other. Does it seem to you that uh, I mean, I have cover Congress when, you know, there's been a laughter here and laughter there, but um, does it seem to you that she can learn from this or is this uh, something that will just sail right over her head? I don't, I don't know if it, if it, if it sailed right over her head and I don't, I don't see any incentive for her to learn from it because, um, you know, she wants to be Donald Trump's running mate. And the only way to do that is to keep getting attention on herself and, you know, cooling down her act isn't isn't going to do that. Um, you know, we thought, you know, people thought that she was going to cool down her act when she became uh, one of those friends of Kevin, the speaker, Kevin right. McCarthy. Um, and maybe for a week or two, uh, she did cool it down. But since then, you know, she's back to the same old Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that's what, you know, that's what she's incentivized by her constituents and her donors. And again, uh, to get booked on conservative media so she can she can stay front of Trump's mind. And, and he has her phone number. Uh, she held it up on the House floor. Uh, that was the the former president on the other end of the line. So she has Trump's attention and, you know, she's not going to cool it. And for what she sees her own career arc here all, all of a sudden, uh, I just don't see any reason any reason why she would she would take that and do you uh, think she she's viable as, she might take it as motivation to double down actually yeah, there you go that's that's what is most think, likely here do you think she is viable as and i'll start with michael on that is she a viable candidate for vp and nikki haley making that i mean marjorie taylor green and donald trump on a ticket seemed to me to be the ticket from hell but what do i know michael you well i 
I think the lead for this podcast is, is Marjorie Taylor Greene educable? Stay tuned. <laughs> Irascible, but, but <laughs> educable, I don't know. So, Execrable, yeah. All right, go ahead. Now, I was gonna say, so if the question on the, the floor is, is a Trump Marjorie Taylor Greene ticket viable in a general election? I hope to God it isn't, um, because they're, they're they are they are outliers um, uh, by 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 a long shot about I think where the country is as a as a whole. You know, you have your MAGA people, and you've got your left leaning people who are you know the twenty yard line to the goal line but if you look at it if you look across the issue on on choice on the environment on gun safety all the stuff america is pretty you know unified in in its in its, in its thinking around that it's just that the parties are are captured by the 20 yard line to the goal line folks um and the problem is trying to find a someone who represents the consensus so that we can put the Trump years behind us and move forward in a way that's, you know, in the overall benefit of the national interest. You know, I won't, I won't be happy probably with, with, with a centrist because my politics aren't, aren't centrist, but I think we'd be better off with that as a nation than where we are now. And so the notion of Marjorie Taylor Greene running with Donald Trump, uh, as a, as the major party candidates to me is horrifying. Now, if Trump doesn't win the uh, Republican nomination and he decides to run as a third party, then he and Marjorie Taylor Greene make perfect sense because they're then they're complete disruptors, which is what they are, and and they would be out there to say the two party system is broken and we represent a, a third party alternative and we're going to bring you know the type of you know sort of representation to the to the government that we believe America needs in order to deal with all of the big problems that we have in their mind like replacement theory and book bannings and uh, and transvestites and crass <laughs> draws you know all those all those things <laughs> Brian and that's my take so Brian but maybe this is a good segue for you to 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 recite Wanda Sykes <laughs> Um, view oh, of, of this because I'm just channeling her. <laughs> you know, that, let's see if I can find that real quick because I do love it. The uh, from Wanda Sykes until a drag queen walks into a school and beats eight kids to death with a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. I think you're focusing on the wrong shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so and, yeah, and, and that and that's I guess that's so what that's, I'm trying to. That, that's, that's what you're trying to say. That, that, that's, that's, what to, that's right. That 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 a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Donald Trump candidacy focuses on the wrong stuff, and um, and and hopefully America doesn't accept that that is the right stuff because if it is, then you know we're going in the in the wrong direction. John rapidly. Right. Do you see her? No, is I that don't think, I don't think uh, Miss Taylor Green is a uh, viable uh, running mate. And my point, my point wasn't that I, that I thought that, or that Donald Trump even thinks that. Yeah. No, my point your point is that, that's what she that's, wants. That's what she wants. Right. right. But no, she's not, 
you know, somebody like uh, Byron Donalds or or Tim Scott, uh, two black Republican lawmakers, um, make more sense, especially I think Tim Scott uh, makes a lot of sense. I think Nikki Haley for Donald Trump makes a lot of sense. Um, Indian American uh, woman, Republican, former governor. She has foreign policy experience. She was his uh, first ambassador to the United Nations. So, you know, I think somebody like that makes a lot more sense uh, for Trump. Um, I hadn't thought about the third party uh, angle of it. It might make sense then to to Michael's point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I, I, I it, it's also hard to see long term um, where Marjorie Taylor Greene goes in the House. I, I don't you know, I don't see her becoming a committee chair or anything <laughs> like that. So. Um, I have often now, questioned. Now you're just doing your tight five stand-up routine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, maybe she, may, maybe down the road she thinks the Senate might be more fun and, and she'd make a Senate run at some point. Um, I so think having, the only thing she's running is for cover. I don't know if she can get reelected. It it can be really hard to move up in the House. Uh, it's so crowded. There's so many folks. Um, you know, a lot of friends of Kev, Kevin. So I, I just I don't quite see her ascension in the House. Um, so I, I I do think that that eventually she'll move on to something else, but I don't think it'll be uh, as a vice presidential nominee or candidate. Speaking of vice presidential nominees, uh, here's a segue for you. There's somebody else who would love to be looking at a vice presidential nominee, and that was the guy who announced this week in the Republican Party that he is running as well. Now, we all expected it, but Ron DeSantis took to Twitter this week to announce that he is running for president, the Republican nomination, and that he represents the goodness in the Republican Party, and he wants to get he wants to make America great again. Uh, he did it on Twitter Spaces, and that was um, touted by Elon Musk as the biggest story on the planet, despite the fact that it crashed and burned, <laughs> and at the same time, uh, there were people griping about how they couldn't hear it. He said it was the 600,000 people or so was huge. Um, so <clears throat> Ron DeSantis, let's take a, a, a look at him. And Michael, let you take the first whack at this. Uh, how viable do you see a Ron DeSantis campaign? And, and I guess the overall question, guys, as we look at all this stuff, you know, like we look at the stuff about the, the, the debt ceiling. We look at the stuff with Trump. We look at the stuff with Biden, we look at this. Uh, the overall feeling is that the press is screwing the pooch in covering this, but and we'll get to that shortly. But the the DeSantis launch uh, is he a viable candidate to you, Michael? Is Donald Trump in the race? Because <laughs> if he is, <laughs> I don't think DeSantis is viable. If Donald Trump is out of the race because of legal problems or or otherwise, then I think DeSantis has, you know, sort of a inside track to be the MAGA era parent. And uh, I don't know uh, which of those roads uh, will be opened down down the line because it's hard to predict where Donald Trump will be uh, eight or, or 10 months from now. But I think as long as Trump's in the race, DeSantis, and we talked about this a bit last week, DeSantis has got no client base. There's no one who would be attracted to him 
uh, more than they would be attracted to Trump, it would it would seem to me. Notwithstanding the questions about whether Trump is electable in a general election, his base is loyal to him. And they're not about to turn, I don't think, to a person that Trump feels is, you know, sanctimonious and and uh, a Judas for turning his back on, on on Trump, which is also another reason why the Nikki Haley's of the world, I think, maybe are, are are being a bit optimistic when they think that somehow they could criticize Trump on the campaign trail and then to get picked up. This is not Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. The, the, the level of acrimony between Trump and anybody who's not completely on his side is such that I don't think it lends itself to a, a viable team. Well, then that brings the question around. Uh, does it obviously, if he's in the race, uh, DeSantis, and I do love the name that I I, I confess, <laughs> you know, whoever came up with the name Ron DeSanctimonious, whoever on the Trump team did it, uh, kudos to them for that. But if Ron DeSantis is in the race, then that indicates to me that he has probably done the math. And as you said, Michael, figures that he probably can't win if if Trump is in the race. So he's probably figuring that at some point in time, Trump won't be. That's that's what I that's the signal I get from him. That aside, if he is in the race, did the uh, announcement on Twitter hurt him or is that just a lot of crap? And and John, that's I'll let you take a whack at that. Is that because, you know, he was roundly and soundly criticized for the collapse. Elon Musk was made fun of. We heard tell that Ron DeSantis was pissed as hell because his Twitter space announcement fell apart. Does it hurt him? It may if it is an indication of an organization that's uh, not really with it or not ready for prime time or just you know not very good at running a presidential campaign. We don't know yet. Um, if they correct it, then um, then it's a positive down the road. Uh, but we don't know yet because he just got in the race. You know, but one thing it might signal is you know he wants to be a little different. Uh, he he feels a need because he does have to get out of Trump's shadow. Uh, does he feel the need to do uh, these questionable, risky things? Because you know, if you do enough risky things, then you know the the chances of something uh, like the other night will happen when you can't keep your Twitter space live for 15 or 20 minutes and right. the whole political world is goofing on you. And then even Joe Biden's digital team dunks on you uh, while you're still silent <laughs> on Twitter, which happened. So yeah. uh, you don't want to get dunked This link on. works. Yeah, you, <laughs> is that what you're talking it, about? <laughs> it, this link works, exactly. That's uh, That was a, a link that the Biden campaign put out to a donation page for the Biden-Harris campaign while... Uh, DeSantis and Elon Musk were trying to figure out how to plug Twitter back in. Uh, and again, you don't want to get dunked on by the 80-year-old president's digital team. So it could be a really bad sign for DeSantis if they decide to not do some of these risky things down the road. Then they learn from it, and it, it can very much be a positive. But back to one thing Michael said about you know Haley or, or Tim Scott right. or whoever criticizing Trump on the campaign trail— you know, that, that, that'll that make Trump upset. He'll get mad in the moment. But if someone can convince him that a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott, despite the criticism, and there was plenty of it in 2016, that, that they can help him win and beat Joe Biden, 
then he has a way of putting stuff like that behind him. You know, Steve Bannon was very critical of Donald Trump from time to time, and Bannon's back in the circle reportedly. So Trump will look the other way. He'll put stuff behind him, and he That's has to be a way... on Jason Miller, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone. People come back into his circle. So, so Haley could come back from that. They have a meeting. She explains it away. And then Trump does have the ability to stand on a rally stage or sit for one of these interviews with conservative media and say, eh, that's just politics. Nikki had to say those things about me, but we've talked about it and she's fully on board. He has a way of But when has he done that really, John, with, with a, with a um, I mean, he didn't pick any of the, people who ran against him in 2016, many of which I think would have been stronger than, than, than Mike yeah. Pence at that, at that level, you know, I get it at the Steve Bannon um, sort of advisor level, but where at that big level, I mean, you, you see what he did to Mitt Romney. He, you know, completely humili humiliated him by pretending that he was interested in him for his uh, cabinet. I just don't know where is there evidence that at that senior level of Trump, he has any, you know, indication that, that he's willing to forgive and forget. I mean, you may be right. I just, I just, yeah. and I don't, I don't ask it pointedly to put you on the, on the oh, spot. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just well, think of yeah, Trump yeah. as, as, as specializing in holding a grudge. Then we'll probably get another Republican governor from a flyover state like Mike Pence was in Indiana. Yeah. So, so, so who's the person from South Dakota? Yeah. Uh, Christy Nome. You could get, yeah, it could end up being somebody like Christy Nome. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Yeah. So uh, moving on, the you know, when Elon Musk said it was the uh, biggest story on the planet that day, the actual biggest story on the planet that day was the death of Tina Turner. And I want to touch on that briefly before we head to break. Uh, we've got two more issues to cover, one being the impeachment in Texas and some letters from people. But uh, I, I do want to touch on Tina because this was a cultural icon to me and it represents something that I think we've uh, missed desperately in, in in the country today. Look, when uh, when I was a kid growing up, this was Tina Turner was everybody's. I mean, we all had a crush on her. We all loved her singing. Uh, she came uh, to the forefront singing a John Fogarty song and killed it on 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 live television. Rolling, you know, uh, Creedence Crewwater revivals rolling on a river. Uh, but she um, she was it, it was a different time for me in the 70s and the late 60s. I talked to a graduate of my university, uh, the University of Missouri. Uh, she's a um today a, a works for the vice president of the United States. And she says uh, that the entire campus is divided. There's a black campus, there's a white campus, there's people don't mix. But during those, the late seventies, you know, during that era between like 76 and 80, gee, you know, before Ronald Reagan and after, you know, Nixon, when we had Carter, there seemed like a moment there where, you know, look, Everybody got on board with Tina Turner. She was the queen of rock and roll. There's a picture of her with Paul McCartney at her side, Bob Dylan standing behind her. You know, there's every uh, Rod Stewart looking like he was uncomfortable taking the shot. But all these <laughs> rock and rollers who were standing there bowing to the queen. I don't think there's been anything like her before or since. And she defined herself by something much more than just being the victim of uh, spousal abuse. Uh, Michael, how do you how do you eulogize that person? I mean, and what the way you, you do it 
the way you do it is by playing over and over proud mary proud mary baby (laughs) when 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 that when that song uh came out um it put tina turner on on the map and in the hearts and other places of every young boy um (laughs) watching her she was just a, a force and then you know what's so interesting about tina turner is you know you have this you know um proud mary with when she's still playing with her husband ike uh spousal abuser but then she comes back in the 1980s with um <clears throat> the album private dancer i think it was right. called which, which which has that um iconic what's love got to do with it yeah song on it and all of a sudden you know in her in her in her 40s she's you know turning multi platinum uh, uh albums she's a phenomenon you know she yeah. and aretha franklin oh she and well, aretha franklin. yeah absolutely i mean i and she was you know um we don't need another hero that was the other one and it was in the mel gibson movie you know um uh, and i uh, uh on the on the road warrior stuff but to me it was always proud mary rolling on the river baby <laughs> and when i saw her do that live and uh, I, I I was like, Creedence Clearwater who? <laughs> well, but remember that you remember how the song starts. Um, it, it's slow. It's, we never slow. do anything. Yeah, we, we never do slow. anything slow. And, says, and then she then 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 said before the pivot. We but we we're gonna start this song slow. And then yeah. it's you know rolling 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 and then, on and then the river with Ike, with his batter tone, I, uh, with his bass voice. And then all of a sudden, then she pauses, as you said, she says, but we don't do anything slow. And then yeah. <laughs> the full band's orchestration kicks in, and then she's out there making, teaching Mick Jagger how to dance. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly, teaching the world how to dance. And I, you know, all the stuff that was eulogized about her, I'd go, golly, she was, you know, she was a fashion icon too, but uh, how do you not mention that she could dance her and, you know, I remember her and at the time, this is going to sound date the hell out of me, but her and Lucille Ball had, when you watch them dance, their legs were just like, they were, she was out there, man. I'm telling you, John, <laughs> have we left you in the dust, my brother? <laughs> well, to be on uh, clearly a, a talent in, in so many different ways. And as you said, a cultural icon, admittedly, I am probably more qualified to talk about Trey Turner than Tina Turner. Um, <laughs> but I do think about something that, that you said that she united people of all races and genders yeah. and political beliefs. And that's something that I do think about uh, is how divided we've become in, in just about every way. You know, I, I log on, uh, the other day, uh, getting my workday started on Friday and, and suddenly conservatives are boycotting Twitter. So you, we don't even have we don't even have like big box department stores that we can all agree to go to just because they have nice stuff. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't. I, that's what I think about when I think about folks like Tina Turner that did uh, unite the country in a different era. And, and I just wonder where where we're headed i mean you can't even have a breakout star now uh because you know the left and right will 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 have completely opposite views of that person so it's um, yeah i i it's, it's, it's shot it's it's, it's, it's almost like a throwback 
it's almost before the civil it's like before being before the civil rights movement there's you know and i just it, her you didn't see her i didn't see her as oh there's this black woman singing i saw her as, right. god damn there's a sexy beautiful woman who can really belt one out i i'm watching that and you know idris elba saying he doesn't want to be defined by his color he wants to be defined as an actor it, it you know as a man and i just mm -hmm. think that if she represents she represents what I think is best about America, but that yeah, one thing me. when I to think about it another way, I would ask our, our listeners to think about what if Tina Turner was, you know, a, a 23 year old just breakout star. What if she walked out next February and sang the national anthem at the Super Bowl? What would Twitter and what and your Facebook feed look like? There you go. We're going to take a, another short break. We'll come back with letters and a real quick wrap up of what happened in Texas. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question and Michael uh, we can't get out of this week without talking about how weird Texas is. And having lived there, I can I can vouch for that firsthand. Uh, <clears throat> only place I've ever gone where there's a strip bar across the street from a church. But anyway, uh, th this week there was <laughs> that's got on this true story. <laughs> I would I would have loved to have been at that planning board meeting. <laughs> <laughs> there was an impeachment in Texas. And Michael, you want to explain what the hell happened? This was a MAGA guy that got impeached by other Republicans. Right. So Ken Paxton, the attorney general of the state, um, retaliated against some of his employees and was required to pay in settlement $3.3 million. He turns around and asks the legislature to pay for it which sets off a, a firestorm <laughs> of um, regret on his part, I expect. Um, and um, that- That's and, putting it mildly. Yeah. That, that level of hubris and other allegations of um, self-dealing and, and, and corruption led the Republican legislature with, I think, 20-ish Republicans and all 60 Democrats voting uh, articles of impeachment against Paxton. He'll have to get tried in the Senate in Texas, just as any impeachment right. occurs at the federal level. And in the meantime, his first uh, assistant will take over, and he's you know every bit as Ken Paxton as Ken Paxton is. Um, <laughs> uh, so we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens. But what's interesting to me most about this is you know paxton was a big trump guy and, yeah um, trump is is tweeting out where is um abbott where is governor abbott when you know sort of like one of our own missing in action he says trump 
tweets, missing in action in all caps. Where is the governor of Texas on his attorney general's impeachment? So <laughs> they're setting up they're setting up a um you know an interesting fight, uh, intra-party fight um in in Texas. I, I really don't know exactly who comes out ahead in this thing if everyone who is likely to be a successor to Paxton will have the same politics as Paxton because Abbott does, and he's the appointing official, and the uh, er, and the interim person is a is a Paxton acolyte. So I'm not sure what what this exactly gets us in the long run, other than uh, you know you're changing the name of the person on the on the office door, but the politics of the of the place remains the same. But it was a remarkable thing to behold, you know, the Republicans. It, turning against one of their own and and a Trump, and a Trump guy and yeah, a what it, Trump guy. and what it took for him to do it. John, yeah. does this portend anything nationally or in Texas or or is it just a sideshow? <laughs> well, Trump's involvement uh, means it's not just in Texas, but it is yes. fascinating. I, I saw that Truth Social. Uh, uh, I guess it was from yesterday, and I thought, well, the plot. Just thickened, uh, didn't it? <laughs> what? But what can Abbott do? I mean, Abbott could try to weigh in on the Senate trial, the state Senate trial. Uh, but you know, this isn't a criminal proceeding, so Abbott can't pardon. He Paxton. got nada. <laughs> he could, but he could step in. He could try to block uh, conviction yeah. and ouster in the Senate trial. But then Abbott would be um, accused of, you know, of, of of tainting the state Senate's process. So he might not want to do that either. But you know, now Abbott's in a rock and a hard place. The state uh, House Republicans have put Abbott in a tough spot because, as you guys have just been talking about, uh, <clears throat> now Trump's pissed at him for not stepping in and, and <laughs> trying to prevent this in the first place. So um, the one place you do not want to be uh, right now is in uh, Mr. Abbott's uh, position. He's got a very hard decision to make. And this is a guy who... Um, you know, six months ago was being talked about as a presidential candidate. And now he's got all kinds of troubles inside his own house. Uh, I, and it's just, I, Michael, to your point, it's fun watching them eat their own. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, it, it seems almost illogical that, that this would even happen among MAGA supporters. But there is apparently a line that even they will not cross, which is almost reassuring for the rest of us. Um, and and, and, there, and there's perhaps the silver lining in this for what does this portend um, nationally? And maybe maybe this is like cracks in the door uh, yeah. that that people are beginning to say enough's enough. enough. We've got to we've got to 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 my analogy, we've got to move closer to the center of the field if we want to be a viable party. And um, we'll see. There, there you see. go. Going to end today with a couple of the uh, uh, letters. First, uh, from Aladdin Sane seventy three, uh, for Michael. Um, let's see if I can even read the damn thing. Um, oh, uh, it, and I I don't know if he's a a uh, David Bowie fan or not, but that is a cop uh, name of a Bowie album. And his question is, Michael, do you believe the uh, that the national that the nation can survive with the division? something we just talked about can the nation survive our current uh division brought about by trump i don't think long term 
I, I don't think it's sustainable to have um, this level of acrimony uh, and be a democratic republic. I, I think that we really are in a very important pivot point in our nation's history. And we either got to come back to you know the center of normalcy, or we really do risk um, a long-term rupture or, you know, demagoguery, uh, you know, the, er the Erdogans and the, the, those types of strongmen leading the country for, for a while. I mean, I, I think this is an important pivot point for us, what happens in 2024. If 2024 returns the MAGA folks to the presidency, in answer to your uh, writer's question, I don't see that being a good uh, sign that we can survive as we have um, between, you know, the beginning of our country and, and now. I just think I'm I, very I, pessimistic about it. Well, and I will add a note of optimism over the two things that we've talked about today. One is um, the debt ceiling negotiation gave me hope that we're returning to some level of normalcy, regular politics, give and take. And what happened to Texas? There may be a, uh, you know, maybe they're seeing that we just can't go too far. For you, John, I have one from Cheese Curd Army. I don't know where they come up with these names. Uh, <laughs> uh, my people. <laughs> Cheese Curd Army wants to know from you, you've covered Congress. Why can't they get rid of the Electoral College? Wow. Uh, why can't Congress get rid of the Electoral College? I think that is because it would require uh, votes that they don't have. And the Electoral College is viewed by both parties as um, being something that can be very advantageous because you don't have to win the popular vote. Uh, we're about to see Donald Trump, I think, run really hard in about eight states. <clears throat> Excuse me now, of course, he'll do rallies elsewhere. Uh, but it's it's the same eight states as the last few elections. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have to win the popular vote. Demographics, uh, you know, go against are going against the Republican Party right now. Um, but you don't. So, so that's one reason to keep it is if you're demographic demographically, uh, you know, falling behind. If you can win those eight states and like we were saying, if it's Target versus Walmart everywhere else. But you can steal uh, five of those eight states, not steal, not steal, sorry, wrong word. <laughs> uh, if you can win five of those eight states and the rest of the country is Target versus Walmart, well, you got yourself a presidency. There you go. Yeah. Can I just add, can I just add one yeah. additional point in answer to that question, which is that the Electoral College is constitutionally mandated, Article 2, right. Section 1. So if you wanted to get rid of the Electoral College, you have to have a constitutional amendment. And anyone who favors opening the Constitution to amendment in this day and age, um, <laughs> to me, uh, has, some, has some additional thinking to do. <laughs> or thinking at all to do. That's, right, right, that's right, so, right, right. The last letter is from uh, Gossamer Goose. Uh, Brian, why is it that you continue to maintain there's no such thing as a liberal media when we all know there is? Um, I think there's bad media. 
Oh, in, in the in this in the spirit of pimping things, read the book, free the press. Let's <laughs> I'll pimp that. But well look, it's not. Uh, there is there are liberal tainted media. There is a uh, uh, Republican or conservative tainted media. What I maintain is that there are six corporations that run about ninety five percent of what you see, read, or hear, and they're more interested in making money, depending on what you believe, tailoring. It's not about the journalism. It's not that there's right and left wing journalism. It's that there's right and left wing bullshit that's given to you to buy because you'll buy it. And when you stop buying it, then they'll stop selling it. So unless you break up the media monopolies or change the fundamental way of that we do business, you're not going to see what is mostly a symptom of a problem in journalism and not a cause of a problem in journalism. So there's my preach. And if you want more, you can read it online. Anybody else want to jump in on that one? <laughs> well, I, I just, just, just to, to put a underline on your sentence, I, I really think it is a myth of uh, liberal media. I think, as you say, Ryan, yeah. it's, it's corporate uh, media because those who, you know, consider liberal media liberal really don't understand that, there's not liberal politics here so much as there is um, corporate-led yes. motives for what is covered on the news. And I think we, because of corporate media, boy, here, here's a closer, <clears throat> because of corporate media, that's why you will see idiots in the White House press briefing room asking the press secretary, who has nothing to do with the negotiations on the debt, ceiling ask her if she can guarantee that there will be a deal listen john you're shaking your head on that one you were you... <laughs> um how did okay uh i was in the room i was in the briefing room uh when those questions were asked uh, my hand was up and that is not uh, what i was going to ask uh corinne um i don't i don't get the sense that she was uh, plugged into the talks and uh, she I, wasn't I, I i don't get the sense that um that they wanted her they being uh the guy who sits in the oval they office didn't <laughs> wanted her plugged into the talks we still haven't heard from the man who sits in the oval office about this deal um, and we it, won't <laughs> he was about a hundred yards from the press pool when um marine one landed in delaware uh, earlier today, he was at Camp David this weekend. Now at his home in Delaware, he's at church right now on Sunday. Um, he could have, he could have had the Secret Service drive him over to where the press pool was and and said a few words and answered some questions. But, um, you know, I, again, I, I don't think that's uh, that was necessarily uh, the way to to go about that in the briefing. But um, I think we could have heard from the president and he could have interacted with reporters a lot more during this process uh, to let us know, you know, exactly. He, he, could, he could have, you know, he could have prepared his own um, supporters for, for the work requirements uh, and what have you uh, that could have taken the press pool to camp David and, and done some kind of spray out there yesterday. Um, so and we don't ask again, the questions. I, under, I understand reporters, uh, asking those questions needed a soundbite for their next standup or their their nightly news hit, um, and they weren't getting it from the president. And having been there, 
I've asked a question in the briefing room just to get a quote because I wasn't getting it from a president and and three presidents now that's been the case and I know more for you so I I I understand why the question was asked that way because the president was not made available to answer it himself. Yeah, poor question. Anyway, let's, I'm gonna I'll stand by that. Uh, Michael, plug uh, you plugged earlier. Uh, where can we catch you, brother? So my podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin on all major podcast apps. And as we've discussed in the past, I discuss with authors books that I think tell an interesting story. This coming week, we will release my interview with Joan Biskubic, the CNN Supreme Court reporter who wrote a book called Nine Robes and the Tilt of the Supreme Court to the Right. And the following week will be Jeffrey Tubin's book, Homegrown, on the rise of white nationalism and Timothy McVeigh. So stay tuned and listen in. It's interesting stuff. John? Uh, CQ Afternoon Briefing, uh, Monday, oh, sorry, Tuesday through Thursday, uh, CQ.com, a Wednesday only this week, and uh, Friday column on rollcall.com. There you go. And this is Just Ask the Question. You can catch me, Brian Karam, at salon.com on a weekly column from the White House, and the name of the book is Free the Press. And once again, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.